I'm not sure how many people here will read the Daily Mail, but a few years ago, the Daily Mail published a report about British tourists. The, the, the story was entitled, Language Louts. And it was a play on words, it was a play on the common term, uh, Lagerlouts, which was a reference to the British tourists who would go abroad purely to get drunk and sit in the sun. This report said that 14% of Brits abroad refuse to speak the local language, shun regional delicacies, they stick to English food, and they avoid engaging with local cultures. It goes on to say that reinforcing the stereotype, one in seven British travellers is a language lout who makes no effort to use foreign dialect when overseas. They expect English to be spoken, especially in Europe, and if conversing with locals, they prefer to point at a phrase book or menu. Cautious and unadventurous language louts also refuse to step away from traditional British food, such as a full English breakfast or burgers and chips, rebuffing local dishes according to the DFDS Seaways study, which quizzed more than 2,000 British holidaymakers. You see, this image of British tourists, these Brits abroad, failing to engage with local culture, failing to engage with local cuisine and local people, has often been mocked by British comedians and British people in general. The comedians would laugh at the narrow-mindedness of these British tourists, and I'm sure many of us in the church will have mocked and laughed at them as well. Often, people will wonder why these tourists would deny themselves the benefits and the blessings of experiencing this culture that they've spent so much money to go and visit, yet they just want to stay and enjoy the status quo of being around their British home comforts. These tourists, rather than enjoy the blessings of a different culture, would rather stick with the status quo would rather stick with what they've always known. Well, in today's passage, we will see how the early church, a number of the Christians in the early church were like these language louts. They were unhappy at how their culture, at how the church culture was changing and adapting to these new Christians, these Gentile Christians that were being brought into the church. And it shows their attempts to keep the, the cultural status quo. So far as you've been reading through Acts, you'll have seen last week that Paul and Barnabas have finished their first missionary journey, that they've travelled to Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium and Lystra uh, for, for, his, for his struggles. Poor Paul was stoned and left for dead and he had to move on to Derby. Then after this, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch to encourage and strengthen the churches. So this brings us up to chapter 15. Now if we look at the first five verses, if you turn with me, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. 
Unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what we see in these first five verses is a group of Christians are not only unhappy with the status quo changing, but they've become heretical in their attempt to prevent it. They're demanding uh, that the Christians in Antioch, the Gentiles, get circumcised. In other words, what they are saying to the churches, Jesus isn't enough. If you want to be saved, yes, you must trust in the cross, but you must also trust in circumcision and Jewish customs. What they are saying is that salvation comes from trusting in Jesus plus also becoming a Jew. Paul and Barnabas understand that this is complete rubbish and they uh, want to put a, a stop to it. They call it out for what it is, the heresy. And in verse 2 we see a sharp argument between Paul, Barnabas and those that were preaching this heresy. Paul and Barnabas were defending the gospel against false teaching and they were defending their Christian Gentile brothers and sisters. They were defending them from being forced to adopt to the majority culture. Then on the way to the council, Paul and Barnabas meet up with some of the other churches. And the Christians in Phoenicia, Samaria and Samaria heard about the obvious signs of salvation that was happening in Antioch and they were rejoicing. These churches would have had both Gentile and Jewish Christians within them. Showing that it wasn't every Jew that felt this way, but it was just a minority of Jews trying to keep the status quo. Yet when Paul and Barnabas shared the same story with the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish converts who belonged to the group of Pharisees, they were not impressed with this good news. They too disputed the, the grace that is present in the gospel. And they too were claiming that salvation comes through faith in Jesus plus works. The church that originally sent out Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel was now saying that the gospel wasn't enough. They were saying that to know salvation like the Jews, you must in essence become like the Jews which meant they must also follow the customs and the laws of the Jews. I have a friend who is a pastor, and he is, he's a black man from uh, London. He, he is black British, and he grew up listening to rap music, and his culture was heavily influenced from that rap culture. 
He would dress in a baseball cap and a, and a, and a hoodie and a, and a big puffer jacket. And when he first went to church, he was welcomed and he was loved. And when he got saved, the church couldn't wait to get him up on the stage to share his testimony. Then after a while, after a few months of being a Christian, he was asked if he could hand out communion. And he was really excited at that. He was excited at the thought that he was uh, progressing in his faith and was being trusted to hand out communion. But the week before he was due to do it, he was told, if you hand out communion, you must lose the cap and the puffer jacket. He was told that he needed to wear a suit and that the way he was presenting himself that day wasn't suitable for handing out communion. And it gave him an impression that he was a second-class Christian. My friend was seen in a similar way to these Gentiles, an almost Christian, someone who believed in Jesus but still had a little bit of work to do. A little bit of work before he would be accepted as a proper Christian. A little bit of work to do before he could truly serve Jesus. And that work was not to cut off his foreskin, but to cut off his cultural identity and to assimilate to the majority culture. You see, as Christians, as the church in the UK, we can often become like these language louts desperate to keep our cultural status quo. And this opening passage gives us two important bits of advice. First, we must never, ever add our personal preferences for people to be just like us to the gospel. And second, like Paul and Barnabas, we need to defend and stand up for those who are having that kind of heresy imposed on them. So to get, begin with, let's focus on number one. We must never add our preference for people to be just like us to the gospel. Yet that is exactly what we are doing as a church across all domination, denominations, across the whole of the United Kingdom. And since I belong to a network of churches called the FIEC, and since this church is part of it too, we'll, we'll start with the FIEC. And no offence to Phil, my brother up there, who I love dearly. But the leadership team of the FIEC and the speakers at this year's conference was white, was middle class, was academic, and a lot of them were former professional workers. And, and the FIEC is, is the network that directs funding, training, and church planting strategies. And I know that nobody within the FIEC is preaching that the only way to salvation is faith in Jesus and being white and middle class and academic or a former professional worker. But a lack of diversity speaks louder than words. Next, let's look at the funders. The funders who fund Christian ministry and Christian training and Christian church planting consist of people who are predominantly white, British. But I had a meeting with some funders not so long ago, and it was good to see a little bit of diversity there. What I saw was, amongst the white British funders, there was people of Nigerian heritage and Indian heritage. 
So it seemed like there was some diversity ethnically. But as I spoke to them, it was quick to see that these people who were appearing to be diverse ethnically were more British, more white, and following the social norms of white British class Christianity than I was. The last call I had, I realised that I was the odd one out. I was the only one who was, wasn't university educated. I was the only one who come from a council estate. I realised I was the only one who wasn't middle class. So again, it's never preached or communicated. But when we see the people who are leading strategy and funding all the works, Christian works in this country, we see that the British Evangelical Church says you are welcome regardless of your ethnicity as long as you assimilate to the white, middle-class British culture and are part of the professional working community. I've spent 10 years trying to convince funders that their application forms, their funding criteria and their decision processes are flawed because the whole process is designed by and delivered by people who are exactly the same as them. And it doesn't get any better when we look at the pulpits of the churches and right down to the pews where our churches are, are being planted is generally almost always middle class, academic. Many of our pastors are entering ministries after initially spending time in a professional role. They're university educated and middle class. But before you switch off because you think I'm having a dig at the middle class, please do not hear what I'm not saying. This isn't an attack on the middle class. I love the middle class. My kids are middle class. They're academic. My daughter is studying. I hope that she will take upon a professional role. And I praise the Lord for this. I praise the Lord for middle class pastors. In fact, I'm more middle class today than I am working class. I'm educated to postgraduate level, I own my own home and I'm an executive director for a Christian charity. I praise the Lord for churches and for church plants in middle class and affluent areas. I praise the Lord for the FIEC and I praise the Lord for the Christian funders that are supporting Medhurst Ministries. And I know that the middle class and the rich need the gospel just as much as the poor. My complaint isn't about the middle class. My complaint is that the poor and the working class are being treated in a similar way to how the Gentiles were being treated by the Judaizers in Antioch. And when I've given this comparison before, many people have been hurt and been insulted by what I've had to say. But if we can just shelve what I've just said, if there's any offence, just shelve that for a moment and try and put yourself in the shoes of the poor. Think about the poor who cannot find a church in their local area. They can't find a church in their local community because all the churches have shut and there's no new ones being planted there because they're being planted in all the affluent areas. 
Put your feet in the shoes of the poor who have to travel to a middle-class community to find a church. Then once they get there, they don't see anybody like them. They don't see anybody like them in the pews and they don't see anybody like them in the pulpit. And they're the odd one out. And then if they ever get invited to a conference, they see exactly the same at the conference, yet on a much bigger scale. And what do you think this communicates? Nothing's being said publicly, but what is being shown visibly communicates a lot. It communicates that Christianity is a middle-class religion and salvation is only available if you trust in Jesus, have a degree, a good job, and eat quinoa. That was a joke. <laughs> I'm just showing off because I know how to say it now. I used to call it quinoa. <laughs> That's how middle class I've become. Yeah. But seriously, the UK church doesn't require you to cut off a foreskin or follow mosaic laws, but it often requires you to cut off your culture and follow the middle class British social norms. But the good news is, the exciting news is, that what we're doing today, that me being here preaching to a culture that's so far removed from mine, is doing something to change that perception. This is why I'm excited to be here. We are seeing this church here in North Store and many churches across the country developing friendships and partnerships across cultures. Inviting me to preach is one way that we can change this perceived idea of Christianity only being for the middle class. Asking Josh and other pastors from around the country to come and preach in churches like mine is another way that we can change this perception. I'm grateful for this partnership because like the Gentiles, we need people like Paul and Barnabas to defend the minorities to stand up for them and to reassure them that they don't have to assimilate and they don't have to have other people's cultures imposed on them. And we need you to do the same for us. Which brings us to point two. We need to defend those who are having the preferences of the majority imposed on them. Not just for their benefit, not just for my benefit, not just for yours, but for the benefit of the whole church. So that we can enjoy the common grace of God that is displayed in every culture and every people group throughout the world. Paul in Ephesians 3 describes that how, even though God saves us and unites us, he never saved us to be uniformed. God saved us to be united to him and united to each other as a church, but never to be uniformed, never to be the same, but to be diverse. And that diversity, that reality of the multicultural church that displays God's multifaceted wisdom causes the supernatural world to marvel. Since the fall, since the exile from the Garden of Eden, since the first promise of our saviour Jesus the angels and the 
demons have been wondering how God is going to unite man first to him, then to each other in the church. For centuries, the heavenly beings saw the plan of God being worked out. Yet during this time, man was becoming more divided from God and more divided from one another. Yet God's marvellous, multifaceted, multicoloured, multicultural wisdom is displayed in how he unites Jews and Gentile, man and woman, young and old, rich and poor, through trusting in the perfect life the perfect death, the perfect resurrection and ascension and the hope of his eventual return of his son, Jesus Christ. And now these heavenly beings are astounded at how the cross displays a, a perfect diversity by uniting every culture and every people group, first in their need for a saviour and second in their role as children of the living God and co-heirs with Christ. You see, if we want to be a church that displays the manifold wisdom of God, we need to be reaching people groups who are missing from our pulpits. We need to be reaching people groups who are missing from our church. We need to be welcoming them, equipping them, and learning from them. We must communicate that they belong and to do this, we need people like you to shout up for them. To say that we want and need more churches supported and planted in areas of deprivation. To say that we want and need more diversity from the pew to the pulpit. More diversity amongst those who allocate funding. More diversity to those who decide where the churches are being planted. To the leadership of national networks such as the FIEC and even to Medhurst Ministries who currently have an all-white board apart from one person and that person's not even from England. They live in America. As a church, as a Christian organisation, as, as God's people, we need to reflect that Ephesians 3 idea of what it means to be a church. Diverse. The verses go on and say in 6 to 21 that the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles as a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. 
After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Here we see Peter, we see Barnabas, we see Paul and we see James standing up and speaking up for the Gentiles. Peter reminds the, the church and the council that it is God's plan and God's desire for the Jews to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and for the Gentiles to be saved. He reminds the council that like the Jews, the Gentiles also have the Holy Spirit. That like the Jews, the Gentiles are saved by faith in Jesus and that God does not discriminate between Jew and Gentile, so they shouldn't either. He reminds them that putting burdens on the Gentiles is testing God and that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are dependent on faith in Jesus for salvation. Paul and Barnabas then share about the fruit they have seen in light of the repentance of the Gentiles and how God is working amongst the Gentile church. Then James, the, the brother of Jesus, backs up the arguments of Peter, Paul and Barnabas with Old Testament scripture. He quotes from the, the book of Amos and he concludes the argument by saying that the church should not make it difficult or add burdens to the Gentiles. They should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel, or to be part of the church. James calls for unity and diversity, and he asks the Jews to show grace, contextualization, and sensitivity, so that the, the Gentile Christians are made welcome in the church. Yet James doesn't stop there. James also makes it clear that unity and diversity is a two-way thing. And he highlights that the Gentile Christians have a responsibility and must also show the same consideration and love and sacrifice to the Jewish Christians. That the Gentiles must also look at their behaviour and see where their behaviour might be causing offence to the Jewish Christians where their lifestyle might cause their Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. And he asks them to back off from the practices that are associated with idolatry, pollution and sexual immorality, such as being associated with the temple prostitutes. He doesn't say this because this will affect their salvation. He says this because he wants them to reflect the same love and grace that James is asking from the Jewish Christians. A love so that the Jewish and Gentile Christians can share a meal together without the, the Jewish Christians worrying about eating defiled food that might have been prepared by the Gentiles. 
You see, the request for abstaining from this food is a, a unity and diversity issue, not a salvation one. And it reminds me and it convicts me of when I first planted New Life Church. All the founding members were first-generation Christians, all of them working-class people off the local council estate. There was a lot of people attending who were unbelievers. Many had addictions. There was a few homeless. And there was quite a lot of ex and current offenders. Although the service was very familiar and similar to the majority of conservative evangelical church services in the country, apart from how I look and maybe how I preach my sermons, as they would have had a lot of applications and illustrations specific to life on a council state. But other than that, the service reflected most Christian, conservative, evangelical services throughout the land. However, before and after the service, it was quite different. It was like a zoo. It was chaotic. It was loud. There was a lot of banter, a lot of people insulting each other for a joke who, who found it funny. And if you weren't from our culture, you probably would have found it very unnerving and very intimidating. Over the time, we had several middle-class people contact us who had heard about our ministry. They wanted to join us and were excited about what we were trying to do, so we invited them to come and try us out on a Sunday. Sadly, most of the people who turned up felt like outsiders. Many would never return. Many would be upset about my jokes about boffins, couscous and park runs. Others were intimidated by how loud and how brash the other members were. And my, re my initial response to this was, tough, now they know how I feel when I go to a church. Yet God quickly started to convict me and show the sin in my own heart. I had been hurt by the church I was challenging the lack of diversity amongst the UK churches. I was calling out the sin of the dominant church culture for marginalised peop people like me. I was preaching from uh, Ephesians 3 and saying that things had to change if we truly wanted to reflect God's manifold wisdom. But when I looked at New Life Church, it was clear that we were no different that the dominant culture in our church was marginalising the minority cultures who visited us. It was clear that the working class was the dominant culture and we were expecting people to fit in or move on. And sadly, that's what most of them did. That is why we had to change track. That is why I had to repent. And that is why we employed Nathan, who is now the pastor of New Life Church. Nathan, a.k.a. Prince Harry, a.k.a. Posh Waffle. <laughs> Nathan is a young man from Cheltenham. He's middle class. He's academic. He is completely opposite to me and many of our members. But he was needed. He was needed to represent a diversity that we wanted to see in our church. Then we were merged with a small elderly middle-class congregation, both sides having to compromise, giving up certain cultural preferences, 
whilst also taking on the preferences of others. And now we have a large group of Nigerians and several people from Ghana joining us. And we're now having to navigate new preferences that we'll have to take on and old ones that we might have to lose. But it's hard because as Christians, we can often become like the language louts, desperate to keep the cultural status quo. But if we want to have unity and diversity in the church, each culture in the church must be united on the gospel and be willing to follow the greatest commandments to love God and to love others above yourself. We all need to be willing to display the same love and the same grace that God has given to us. We need to model that to our members and to those who are not like us. The verses go on and say, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Basabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter, The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you troubling your minds by what they said, so that we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Basabbas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You were to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace, to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. The Jerusalem Council respond amazingly to the challenges by the church in Antioch. They listened to the concerns of the minority culture. They looked at the concerns in light of Scripture. They responded by not just sending a letter, but also sending officials. They responded relationally. They acknowledged the wrongdoing. They criticized the false teachers. They validated the Gentile Christians by acknowledging the Holy Spirit's role in their salvation and the decision of the council meeting. And they promised not to place any more burdens on the Gentile Christians. They also requested that the Gentiles showed the same grace and love to the Jewish Christians as the Jewish Christians were showing to them. This is a godly response. And this godly response took effort. This godly response took time and it required sacrifice. And because of this, it was greeted with joy by the Gentile church. The false teaching and the prejudice of some of the Jewish converts once risked dividing the early church. Yet God sovereignly used this to strengthen and unite it. 
And as soon as this conflict was resolved, Paul and Barnabas did what was most important to them and started preaching the gospel again. You see, as Christians, we can often become like the language louts, desperate to keep the cultural status quo. Yet, praise the Lord, this wasn't the desire of the Jerusalem council. They were desperate to see a church molded by God, by His Word and by His Spirit. A church that reflected the diversity, not only of the culture of where the churches were planted, but it also reflected the diversity of the Trinity. A church that reveals the beauty of the gospel rather than the ignorance of it. And the question for us this morning is, as Christians, what are we desperate to see? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just come before you and we thank you that that risk of division amongst the church led to unity, diversity, your church being strengthened and your gospel being preached. And we pray, Lord, that as we acknowledge the mistakes and problems within our church, Lord, that we won't ignore it, that we will respond like the Jerusalem Council, that we will face it head on, that we will challenge it with Scripture, that we will trust in the Holy Spirit, and that we will look for a church that is not moulded by our cultural preferences, but by your Word, your Spirit, and our love for our Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.